You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, this is the uh, last message in our series in the Book of Acts, and uh, broadly speaking, it's, it's an account of the works of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, uh, as we've heard it called Acts of the Apostles. No, it's not Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Because what Jesus did in life, the Holy Spirit then takes and plants into the church in the same power. The um, account in Acts tracks uh, the gospel taking hold by the Spirit's power through the newly formed church. They've been given permission, authority, to spread that word with dynamite power, dynamic power. Now, there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and and last week uh, we got to chapter 9, so you might be wondering, (laughs) how's this the last message? Well, you better buckle up, (laughs) because we've got a lot to cover today. (laughs) Now, in actual fact, we're going to finish up in Acts 12 today. And and I know that's leaving half of the book out, but it's actually a a fitting place to stop. So we're going to stop in Acts 12, and I'm going to take you through a little whistle tour of Acts uh, 10 and 11. But do you remember back in the very first message in this series, and back in Acts 1, uh, verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, the first seven chapters of Luke's work concentrate on that first part, what the Holy Spirit is doing through the church in Jerusalem. And then chapter 13 onwards concentrates largely upon the spread of the gospel to the outer parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth. And it begins in chapter 13 with with Paul and Barnabas being sent out, in, in effect, the very first overseas missionaries. But chapters 8 to 12 show the second part, the all Judea and Samaria And they act as kind of a hinge, like a hinge on a door uh, on which the gospel spreading pivots. Because up until that point, it's been Jerusalem. After that point, it's to the ends of the earth. But the hinge is Judea and Samaria. This is where Jesus turns the persecution offensive into the proclamation opportunity. This is where he turns the obsessed persecutor into the apostle preacher. There's no obstacle, past, present, or future, that God cannot overcome. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing can tie you up, hold you down, throw chains around you, because he is the chain breaker. It's really interesting because I planned this message months ago. And I put the the meat and the bones of it in this week, and I did not know that you would stand up and talk about breaking chains. He is the chain breaker. 
And we're going to briefly read together three scripture segments, one from each chapter. And the first will be Acts 10, 9 to 16. So if you want to go there, Acts 10, 9 to 16. And while you're going there, let me give you a little bit of background. Because there's this lady called Tabitha, uh, or Tabitha, uh, and, and she's also known as Dorcas. And she's a really godly woman. She's living in, in a seaside town in Israel called Joppa, which is modern-day Jaffa. Some of you have been there because it's where our friends Margaret and David have been living. I say have been because literally within a week, they'll be home for good. Brilliant. And this, uh, this godly woman dies. And Peter's in a nearby town, uh, and, and he's called by her family and friends. And, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he raises her from death back to life. And we see that dynamic power in operation. And then Peter stays with a guy called Simon, who's a tanner. And if you know anything about tanners, you know that's a stinky house. Why did you choose that one, Peter? It's no wonder that later on we find him on the roof. It's probably where he got a bit of fresh air. And while Peter is in Joppa in Simon's house, a centurion called Cornelius is in Caesarea, and he has a vision, and an angel tells him to send men to Joppa to fetch Peter. And he even tells him where Peter's living, where he's staying I mean, that's amazing detail. You know it's God when the details are all put in. So let's read together. About noon the following day, as they, that's Cornelius's crew, were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. I know how he feels. He saw heaven open up. And something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Well, surely not, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time and said, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So that's the first reading. The second one is going to be in Acts 11. And that's 11 to 18. Not chapters, verses. <laughs> Acts 11, uh, 11 to 18. And while you go there, Peter's really trying to figure out what this vision is all about. When Cornelius' men turn up at the door, looking for him. And the thing about these guys is they're Gentiles. They're unclean in the eyes of the Jews, in, in a kind of similar way to, to how the, the food dangled in front of Peter's eyes was unclean. These Gentiles are unclean in the same way. So Peter heads to Caesarea, and he meets with Cornelius and a gathering of other Gentiles. And, and really, this is his, Cornelius' family and his closest friends. And Peter tells them that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit um, a Gentile, but God has shown him otherwise. And so Peter preaches, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, much in the same way as on the day of Pentecost, he fell upon the disciples. And then they're baptized with water by Peter. Baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then baptized with water. And these are Gentiles considered impure and unclean. And Peter's astounded. And he reports to the church, and he links together 
the vision he had of the food with the experience he had with the Gentiles. God has broken the chains that restricted in law and he's broken the chains that divided in race. So let's read together Acts 11, 11 to 18. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, so we took more disciples, and, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all of your household will be saved. As he began to speak... The Holy Spirit came on them uh, as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they had no further objections. And praise God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Hallelujah. And it's kind of amazing, isn't it, that they they had no further objections. So you can see what happened here. Peter goes to the church and says, hey guys, I've had a bit of an encounter here. Tells them, the Gentiles, that, that we're all in the same bag now. We're all in the same boat. And you can imagine what his Jewish believers would have been asking him, but at this point, after he explains it, no further objections. And the third scripture that we're going to go to is in Acts 12 and verses 6 to 9. Acts 12, 6 to 9. And while you go there, the the remainder of Acts 11 talks about the church spreading as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And, And the Gentiles are being added to their number. The church is blossoming with Gentiles. And in fact, Antioch is the first place where the word Christian was ever used to describe who we are. Around about this time, back in Caesarea, there's a guy called Herod Agrippa. That's not Herod who killed all the babies um, before Jesus was born. Uh, This is his son, Herod Agrippa, and he illegally kills James. Remember, the Romans were in rule here. He kills James, the the son of thunder, not, not the brother of Jesus, but James, the son of thunder, kills him by the sword. And the non-believing, the non-Christian Jews are delighted by this. They're really happy. And, And Herod notices this, and so he arrests Peter. And he puts Peter under a heavy, heavy guard. He kind of gives it a bit of overkill, to be honest. And I think he's got in the back of the mind the fact that he's like, hang on, this guy's already escaped from prison once. (laughs) So I'm going to make sure I doubly guard him. Things look bad. Have you been there before? Things look bad. They look desperate. He hasn't put him in prison to give him a fair trial. Things look desperate. But the church prays in earnest. And let's read Acts 12, 6 to 9. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And sentries stood at the entrance. And suddenly, 
an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel told him this. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was having another vision. So here's Peter in the street in the middle of the night, being busted out of prison by an angel. And he's not even convinced it's real. God is the chain breaker. You know, I'm so glad that when Jess wakes me up in the morning, she's not like the angel in that cell. (laughs) Strike him on the side. Actually, it's not true. When I snore, (laughs) that's exactly what I get. (laughs) Don't tell her I said that. Okay. Chains can be used for a variety of reasons. Chains can be used to drive something or direct something or pull something. Chains can be used to separate or keep things apart. Uh, And chains can be used to bind up and imprison. So I want to look at these three points today. Firstly, chains can be used to force something in a direction, to pull it or to drive something, to get something moving mechanically where it has no choice in its direction. For example, um, we used to live in Poole. It's a lovely place, uh, beautiful sunshine most of the year, temperatures that are at least 15 degrees higher than Bowness at most points, and uh, gorgeous seven miles of beautiful beaches, no muddy fourth estuary, beautiful, beautiful sandy beaches. And, and on the entrance to the Poole Harbour, there's a ferry. And this ferry just goes a tiny little tiny little way across the entrance, but it's got some of the strongest tides in the country. And so that ferry is on a chain. And as it's driven, it's driven along the chain so that the chain holds it straight. It holds it in its direction. The ferry driver, I don't know if that's what they're called, but he can't just go, do you know today I fancy going into the harbour a little bit and having a little poodle around the islands. You know, it's a nice day to pull up in in Pool Harbour itself and at the quay and get an ice cream. He can't do that. All he can do is go this way and go this way because everything is dictated by the chains which hold it. And another analogy of this would be a bike chain where where the chain is just locked in and and as you turn the pedals, the the chain goes round in whichever direction you're pedaling and that causes the movement of the wheels. The wheels aren't going to move if the chain's not going. And the chain's not going to move unless you're pedaling it. Spiritually speaking, what drives us? What, what forces us, pulls us, moves us in a direction? Well, you might be able to think of a few examples. My first example is this, sin. Sin. Sin is the default position of the human life. It's woven into the fabric of our fallen being. It's, it's unavoidable. And something about sin, if you think sin is about doing bad things, like the bad things that we do, you're wrong. I'll say that categorically, I'll underline it, I'll highlight it in bold red letters. You're wrong if you think that sin is about just bad behavior and doing naughty things. Not only are you wrong, but you'll also struggle to understand 
your need for rescue. Because if it's just about doing bad things, then surely you can just do good things instead, right? And just rebalance the scales a little bit. The sin is not the bad things that we do. Those are symptoms, like a runny nose or a cough or a sore chest. They're the symptoms of the cold or a flu. It's the outworking symptom. Sin is the virus. It's the inherent sickness. It's the condition. Symptoms versus the condition. Symptoms versus cause. Sin isn't, oh dear, I told a fib. Sin is in the fabric of your being and that's why you do the fib. It's not something that you can avoid by being good. It's like a driving chain that keeps you on a track moving in one direction. And you know what? That direction is headed straight for separation from God. You can't avoid that. You are that ferry. You are going to cross that harbor mouth. That chain will pull you in that direction and it doesn't matter how much you fight it. And, And some of you know this because you've done a lot of good things, but often you know that you can't outweigh really the symptoms of that condition that lies at the root of who we are. Someone needs to break the chain. And in Acts 10, 43, it says, all the prophets testified about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He's the one who breaks the chain, but God doesn't simply forgive the symptomatic sins. When you got saved, when you, when you laid your life before him, he didn't just go, I'm going to forgive you for all the naughtiness that you've done up until this point. But you better go away and behave yourself from now on. No. He forgives you fully. First breath to last breath. How many sins had you committed when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago? None. Jesus died for your sins. How many of your sins has he died for? All of them. He deals with the root. He deals with the fabric of our being. He, he changes our condition, literally makes us new creations in Christ. God is the breaker of the chains that drive us. Hallelujah. And the, the next thing that chains do is that they separate. Like, like a fence is used to separate, like to keep apart, to, to hedge in, or to control barriers or boundaries or parameters. Now, what could that be? Well, law, law, the law is a fence. It's a hedge. Peter received instruction from God that he struggled to make sense of because all he had known was this fence of law. God put those parameters in place. The original instruction was given by God, but God was giving a new instruction. Was the original instruction wrong? Don't eat those type of animals. Was it wrong? No. God gave that. God's never wrong. But he never intended that to be permanent or forever. It was temporary. It was a fence temporarily put there. It it had a purpose. It was like providing a safe pasture. It was like if you have kids... You don't just want to let them out of the back of your house onto the street and go away, do your own thing. 
You, you want a garden that they can play in, that will protect them, that they're safe in, that keeps bad people out and keeps them from escaping onto the road. You, you need that fence. And so God provides the fence. But here's the problem. The, the Israelites were continually jumping over it and getting elsewhere and building their own fences. So in some ways, they're, they're jumping over the barrier and hoofing it across the countryside that was dangerous. And in other ways, they're, they're getting the fence and they're drawing it in and in and in and in and in until you can't move. So they constantly failed. And as planned all along, God extends the boundaries and creates a new garden called grace. It's not just about the food. It's also about the Gentiles. Both were considered unclean. The, 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 the statement about being unlawful was actually incorrect. Peter believed it to be unlawful, but it was incorrect. That was, there's no specific Old Testament law that says, do not hang out with a Gentile. There are rules about purity, cleanliness, things like that. Uh, and it's thought that these were added to in order to protect that. But there was no specific law. But the purity laws meant that the Jews limited contact with Gentiles in order to remain pure. You know, we often take something that God does or has done or says or has said and we put all sorts of extras around it. Uh, and we learn how to get by without God. Because we're making the rules. And that was a problem with the Pharisees. They came to count upon their own righteousness to save them. Removing the need to know and love and depend upon the goodness of Yahweh. The goodness of God. We add layers to religion that are not God. In doing so, we create barriers and blockades. Separations, chains. This shift with the Gentiles is so very important that Luke records it twice. He records the event, and then he records Peter's retelling of the event. Now, Luke's a clever guy. He's a doctor. He, he didn't make a mistake, and oh, I've just told that story twice. Whoops. Better edit that out of the podcast. He, he meant that to be there because it's so significant that you are able to sit in the presence of God this day because God said to Peter, kill and eat. This is no longer unclean. Don't call anything unclean that I have declared to be clean. And God has declared you clean. You can stand in his presence now because of what he's done, because he's made that declaration. He is the breaker of chains that separate people. Uh, and Jesus fulfills the law, that fence. And in his grace, he breaks the boundaries. And finally, we see that Peter... He's in his cell, in chains that bind him. And no analogy is really necessary for this. I think the story conveys enough. You can see it right there. He's, he's doubly chained. He's quadruply guarded. And four squads of soldiers were actually assigned to him. There's no getting out. In human terms, terms this is the end of the road. Have you felt like you've got there? What does that look like for us? I'm reminded of the verse in Hebrews 12 that, that talks about the, the sin that so easily entangles us. But here, in this cell, with this Peter, he's done nothing wrong. He's not been put in prison because he's sinned and done something wrong. 
He is in prison. He is under fire because of the gospel. Sin does entangle us. It does. It's like a a train. It drives us. But sometimes we find ourselves in a sticky situation that looks like the end of the road. And it's in response to the gospel and the enemy's hatred of it that we find ourselves there. What is attacking you spiritually? If, if, you, if you were to say, well, nothing's really attacking me spiritually, I think you need to pray. I'll say this with gentleness. If you think nothing is attacking you spiritually, you need to pray about that. Because the, the enemy hates God and everything that he's created and everything that he believes. Hates everything and everyone who stands for God vehemently, destructively. He, he's seeking to kill and steal and destroy you. So if nothing's attacking you spiritually, you've got to ask the question, why not? Why not? What, what might be binding you or standing in the way of the gospel and its power outworking in your life? We, we look at the town and we're praying constantly for God to move here. But we need to move here because he's going to move through us. There's no good sitting in prayer meetings and just asking him to do it. Honestly, honestly. Again, I'll say this gently. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. You're asking God to do what he's commissioned you to do. That's not a good expression of church. That's not a good expression of the kingdom. I'm not trying to be judgmental here, but the truth is that if we stand in confident power of the Holy Spirit, and if we move out from this place with that confidence and power, even when quaking, I mean, Paul went to speak in some places and he was quivering, but he did it anyway. And he messed up sometimes, just like we all do, but does it anyway. And if we're prepared to do that, we'll see God move in this town. But we're not going to see him move because we have a million prayer meetings where we stay in one building and say, please do something, God. Because he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. But here's the thing, because we do sometimes feel under attack. And we've experienced some of that this morning where there was was some practical stuff. But we actually feel like there was a spiritual dimension to this morning that the enemy is afraid. And do you know what he's afraid of? He's afraid of you. He's afraid of you grasping a hold of what God has for you. He's afraid of you realizing the power that exists in you. He's afraid of you standing up in this town. He's afraid of that. He's terrified that you're going to speak to your neighbor. He's terrified that you're going to speak to people in the streets. He's terrified that you're going to pray for people in Tesco's. He's terrified that you're going to speak to your family and tell them the gospel again and again and again. He's terrified of this. And so he comes against it with everything he's got. And and, and quite often that unsettles us. It's not pleasant. But listen to this. Who shall stand against us? Who shall bring accusation? What or who can withhold you from God or from his love for you? Nothing. Romans 8, 
Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Nothing can separate. He breaks the chains that tie us up. But listen to this. Like Peter in the cell. The angel arrives and, and does the impossible. But Peter had to put his clothes and his shoes on. There's a part for us to play. We have to act upon what God has done for us. If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. So what? And I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, so what next? If the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. Move like that. Behave like that. Act like that. What good is it for you if God removes your chains but you remain in the cell in your pyjamas? What good's that? What good's that to you? What good's that to a dying world that's going to hell? What good's that for the kingdom? Get dressed and follow Jesus. Take that today. Forget everything else. Get dressed and follow Jesus. What entangles you? What holds you back? What keeps you struggling to apply your faith? What holds you in guilt or condemnation? What stops you from trusting him fully? What forces keep you going back to that old pattern of life? Is it fear? Is it stubbornness? Do you need the Holy Spirit to work on that a little bit? Is it habit? Is it a person or people? Is it a tradition? Because we can get all bound up in our traditions and they hold us away from Jesus. What is it? Listen, God breaks every chain. Every chain, every chain. He breaks the chains of our sin. He breaks the chains of our traditions. He breaks the chains of our legalism. He breaks the chains of discrimination. And he breaks the chains of imprisonment. And this isn't just a message for those who don't know Jesus yet. This is for believers today. This is for believers. And as I wrap this up, in Christ, there is a chance for forgiveness, for freedom, for restoration, for wholeness that, that follows true repentance and faith in him. Now, if I offend anybody with this, because this is for believers as well, if I offend anybody with this today, I, I don't care. I'll tell you why I don't care, because I'd rather offend you today and see you in heaven. Then play it safe and then be saying, hey, Ian, where's Andrew? <laughs> I can only say that because Andrew's like the most holy man. <laughs> Even that repentance itself is a gift. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift from God. It's a gift to be able to come to a place of painful, soul agonizing realization of the weight of your sin. Not sins. Sin. It's, it's a gift to be able to repent and literally turn around 180 degrees and go in a different direction. That's a gift. You can't break the chain that is holding you in that direction. It's a gift. Even those anguished tears, it's a gift. It's a gift because you're literally blind to the full weight and consequences of your sin without his intervention in your life. It's a gift because you cannot appreciate the depth of his love for you expressed in the cross 
or, or the abundant life that he offers you unless you can fathom your own shame and sinfulness. It's a gift because you cannot turn around without his help. Yet Jesus has made a way. It's a gift because you cannot be free without repentance and faith. They are the tools that God uses to break the chains in our lives. And it's made possible because Jesus effectively was chained to a cross in our place. In dying, he took your chains upon himself. Himself being raised, and yet he shattered those chains, offering salvation. It comes by grace alone. It comes through faith alone, and that faith is to be placed in Christ alone. He's the chain breaker. Jesus is the chain breaker. Let's pray. In your name, Lord, there is victory. In your name, there is freedom. And I pray, Holy Spirit, now, even as we, we prepare to sing a closing song and, and take up our tithes and offerings, help us not to rush this, Lord, because we need you. However emphatic my emphasis is on today's message, Lord, we, we need the Holy Spirit to be at work in this room now. Need you, God. We need you for the kingdom's cause in this town. We need you to be at work in this room right now. We need you, God, because if we can't get before you here, we, we, we can't take you anywhere else. We need you, Lord. We need you, Lord. Come and do what we, we can't do. Come and do what we're imploring you to do in this room today and set people free. Lord, whatever's chained us, whatever's bound us, whether that's that we are still chained in opposition to you in our sin and we need to be saved or whether we've been saved for many years but have allowed ourselves to be caught up, bound up, separated and tied up and pulled in directions since. Lord, would you shatter, shatter the chains this morning that hold us. Shatter the chains that bind us. Lord, let there be hope for this town that is surfacing in this room through the power of your Holy Spirit right now. And God, I pray for every person here, every heart, every soul, that you would do something incredibly powerful, new in their lives, Lord God. That, that you would cause to come to life what is currently dead, that you would cause to wake up what may currently be asleep, that you would cause into confidence what is currently sitting in fear, that you would cause us to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in his splendor, in his majesty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, light of lights, and know that he is working in us to change that. Come and break through this now, Lord. Jesus' name. Amen.